In one of my all-time favorite movies, a group of students tracked down their favorite teacher in a schoolyard, and after a bit of playful banter, one of the students asked the teacher a very serious question. What is the Dead Poet Society? The teacher gets a twinkle in his eye and he answers, the dead poets were committed to sucking the marrow out of life. We'd gather at the old Indian cave and take turns reading from Thoreau, Whitman, Shelley, the biggies. And in the enchantment of the moment, we'd let poetry work its magic. We didn't just read poetry. We let it drip from our tongues like honey. I'm more of a George Herbert guy myself. And I never quite felt the same about the poetry of the Romantics as Mr. Keating did. But there was a time in my life when I felt very much that way about the poetry of the prophets. In the first few years of my ministry, I read and reread the prophets over and over again. The prophets were my spiritual guides and mentors. My imagination was so stirred and shaped by the prophets that I decided to share what they were showing me with the congregation that I was serving at the time. And so I did a series on the minor prophets called Living Words for a Dying World. It was one of the most ambitious sermon series I ever preached. Let's just say that it was received with mixed reviews. (laughs) And I get it. I get it. The prophets are like those eccentric relatives that you have. In fact, you might be the eccentric relative. The eccentric relative that unless you get to know them, you're never quite sure if they are just a little odd and harmless or if they're a little off and dangerous. Well, as I've gotten to know the prophets over the years, I want to say that they are all of the above. It's been 26 years since I visited my friend Obadiah, and so I'm happy to come back to see him today and to introduce you to each other. The goal of this sermon is simple. I want to echo the prophet. I want to express his vision both for then and now, and ultimately to exalt our Savior, Jesus Christ. The vision concerns the stormy relationship between two nations, Israel and Edom. The two nations came from two brothers, Jacob and Esau, also known as Cheater and Red, if you know your scriptures well enough. They are the twin sons of Isaac and Rebekah. From start to finish, they struggled with each other. They struggled in the womb, and they struggled out in the world. They struggled as brothers. They struggled as families, then as tribes. And finally, they struggled as nations. One was always trying to get an advantage over the other. And we see this from womb out into the world. But what was the root cause of their rivalry? Well, on one hand... It is the same thing that causes rivalries in your life. As James would put it, quarrels and fights break out among you because your passions are at war within you. Everybody wants what they want. 
You want something, but you don't have it, so you get angry. You covet, but you can't get what you want, so you get frustrated and you fight and quarrel with each other. This was certainly at work in the life of Jacob and Esau, and then later between Israel and Edom. But on the other hand, their rivalry has deeper roots. It has roots in the mystery of God's purpose. As we just heard in one of the scripture readings today, even before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, the Lord God told their mother, the older will serve the younger. Why? The explanation was so that the purpose of God, according to election, might remain unchanged. What is that purpose? Not of works, but of the one who calls. Not of works, but of the one who calls. So all of these things are at work in the story of Jacob and Esau and now Israel and Edom. But what does that have to do with Obadiah's vision? Well, the sibling rivalry between these two nations has been festering for over a thousand years at this point, and it has now come to a head. It came to a head when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians came in to the land of Judah to wage war on the Jews, to waylay Jerusalem. And while that was happening, the Edomites stepped aside and stood aloof and did nothing to help. And not only that, they gloated over Israel's downfall. And it is because of that that Obadiah is sent to speak a word not only to Edom, but to the other nations of the world. But he starts with Edom, and Obadiah excoriates and eviscerates Edom in this way. Shame on you for the violence done to your brothers. Shame on you for standing aloof on the day when strangers crushed his life and carried him off into captivity. Shame on you for standing at the crossroads to cut down the survivors. Shame on you for sneaking back into the city to loot the leftovers. Shame on you for not loving your brother as yourself. You saw his needs, you had the means to help, and you shut your heart against him. Shame on you for taking the way of Cain, who slaughtered his brother, and then asked, Am I my brother's keeper? Shame on you, Edom, as the serpent deceived Eve, so the pride of your heart has deceived you. How? Because Edom took pride in its fortresses, allies, intelligence, luxuries, and strength. You took pride in your fortresses. Edom built fortresses in the side of cliffs, and they cut into the sandstone, and they carved cityscapes, and they were able to hide in those mountain fortresses. If you have ever seen pictures of the Petra, then you have seen an example of Edom's work. If you've ever seen Indiana Jones, when they go looking for the Holy Grail, that's Petra. That was built by the Edomites. They felt secure because their walls of defense were so high and lofty. They had architecture and geography on their side. And there's nothing wrong with any of that per se, but they were so confident in their technologically advanced and architecturally superior fortresses that they could not even imagine that anyone could ever bring them down. They lived in a closed universe, 
So they're only concerned about what man might do to them. Does that sound familiar to any of you? Does it sound like any other nation you might have seen or that you might know about? And yet the Lord says that he will tear them down and he will take them out. He will be the one to bring them from their high and lofty position. You took pride in your allies and alliances. They built alliances with surrounding nations and that made them feel safe and secure because now they had several allies and they could trade and they could protect each other and they had these agreements that they thought were going to keep them safe. Again, there's nothing wrong with making alliances. Good fences make for good neighbors. The problem is they were so confident in these political alliances that they could not imagine that any of their alliances would ever double-cross them, that any of their friends would ever become enemies and come and attack them. Does that sound familiar? And yet the Lord says that their allies are going to trick them and turn on them and treat them like enemies. You took pride in your intelligence and ingenuity. They used their intelligence to expand their knowledge and understanding of life, the universe, and everything. And they used their ingenuity to build infrastructure and cultivate the land and engage in trade and fortify strongholds and generate massive wealth. Again, nothing wrong with any of that per se, but keep things in perspective. They were so confident in their own intelligence and in their own ingenuity that they couldn't imagine that anyone could ever outsmart them or outmaneuver them. They were at the top of the game. They were number one in the world. Or so they thought. Does that sound familiar? And yet the Lord says to them that he will destroy the wisdom of the wise. He will tear down their knowledge. He will make them seem like ignorant fools. You took pride in your luxurious lifestyle. They acquired vast wealth due to their fortresses, their alliances, their intelligence, and their location. Crossroads. People were coming and going all the time. It made them filthy rich. They're flush with cash. They could afford what they wanted, and they could afford to hoard anything they wanted. They're not content, but they're covetous. They want more. They're dissatisfied with having everything, so they want more and more of everything they can get their hands on. They're haughty. They're hoity-toity. Their love of money was a source of trouble for them. They set their hopes on the uncertainty of wealth. And they're so confident in their investments and their holdings, their treasures stored up on the earth, that they couldn't imagine a life without them. They couldn't remember a time when they didn't have these things. They couldn't imagine that their luxuries would ever be lost or stolen or taken away. Does that sound familiar to any of you? And yet the Lord tells them that he will break their economy and their allies will turn against them as enemies and leave them bankrupt. They are going to be pillaged and plundered and plunged into ruin because of their love of money the confidence they had in their luxuries. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil that plunge people into ruin. That wasn't just true in Timothy's day. It's been true from the beginning of the world. You took pride in your strength. You took pride in your strength. 
They boasted of many strings, fortresses, alliances, intelligence, luxuries, but it's their military strength that's in view here. Their mighty ones are going to be cut down. They had acquired enormous power and exorbitant wealth by means of their version of a military-industrial complex. Their military strength and skills protected their markets and trade routes and defended their national interest and secured their borders. This is what militaries do. But they're so confident in their military capabilities that they cannot imagine anyone ever threatening them, much less overthrowing them. Does it sound familiar to anyone? And yet the Lord says, your mighty men shall be dismayed. Every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. There shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So to repeat what Obadiah has said to Edom, Edom, the pride of your heart has deceived you. China, the pride of your heart has deceived you. Russia, the pride of your heart has deceived you. America, America, the pride of your heart has deceived you. Just as the serpent deceived Eve in the garden, the pride of your heart has deceived you. You take pride in your fortresses, alliances, intelligence, luxuries, and strength. And you need to know that your pride fails. And this report is not just for Edom. This report is for all peoples in all places. It is for the nations, as verse 15 says. For the day of the Lord is near upon all nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. Nations of the world, take notice. This report is a fair warning that the day of the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord is at hand. For God has set a day to judge the nations of the world. God has set a day to judge the nations of the world. And God has every right to judge the nations of the world. And here's why. Because God is the source and the sustainer of all things. He himself gives all people life and breath and everything. And he does this for all nations. God is the creator. From one man, God made every nation of men to live on the face of the whole earth. God is the Savior, and he decided beforehand when and where people would live and when nations should rise and fall, and he determined the horizons of our existence. Why? Because God's purpose in all this was so that people of all nations would seek after him and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. He is not far from any one of us. God is not playing hide-and-seek with us. So we need to stop playing hide-and-seek with Him. All the nations of the world must know that God is much closer than He seems. But so is the day of judgment. So the time for pleading ignorance is over. God now commands all people in all places to come clean. 
to turn from their sins and to trust in his Savior. Why? Because God is the judge of the living and the dead. And he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world with justice. As from one man, God made every nation of men. So all nations of men will be judged by one man whom God has appointed. And that man is the Lord Jesus Christ. And just in case anyone doubts the truth of that, God has given proof of all of this by raising Jesus from the dead. As we confess in the Nicene Creed, he rose again according to the scriptures, ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead. His kingdom shall have no end. So let all people in all places know for certain that we must one day stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. Why and for what purpose? So that each and every one of us may receive what is due him for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Think about that. On the day of judgment, every thought, every word, Every feeling, every motive, every intention, every act, and every deed of your life, all the details of your story will be opened up and laid bare before the holy eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it will all be evaluated, assessed, and measured by the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate standard of right and wrong, of good and bad. You will not be compared to anyone else. You will not be compared to your mother or father, to your friend, to your neighbor. You will not be compared to anyone else except the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will find you either guilty or innocent. And then you will be sentenced to receive either punishments or rewards Life or death, according to his judgment. So which do you prefer? What do you want? Life or death? Punishments or rewards? Which do you wish to receive? What do you want? If life, are you willing to do what it takes? Are you willing to turn away from your sins and from yourself to let it all go and to trust in your Savior, Jesus Christ? If not life, are you willing to risk it all by hanging on to your sins and yourself, by turning away from the Savior and trusting in yourself alone? Are you willing to run that risk? Whatever the case may be, we want all people in all places to know for certain That God has provided a way to escape the wrath to come. God has provided a way for you to escape the wrath to come. As the prophet Obadiah says, on Mount Zion, there shall be deliverance for those who escape God's judgment. But how do you escape? You escape by turning away from your sin and by trusting in the Savior, Jesus Christ. All who repent and believe the gospel shall enter the holy sanctuary prepared for the exiles. And who are the exiles? 
The exiles are people like you, pilgrims and strangers in the world who are in search of a true homeland, a heavenly country, the heavens and the earth that will be made new by Christ, and we shall find a safe place in the presence of God. So how shall we live and how shall we respond to these things? Let us ascend to Mount Zion in the Spirit. And let us come to the city of the living God by faith. And then shall we come to innumerable angels in festal gathering. And to the church of Christ, the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Then shall we come to God, the judge of all. And to all the saints and the martyrs made perfect. And finally shall we come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that sets us apart and secures our salvation By God's grace and mercy alone. And in the end, our Savior Jesus Christ shall go up to Mount Zion to rule all the nations. And the kingdom and the power and the glory shall be the Lord's forever and ever. Amen. In light of all these things, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire.